The From Day One podcast is brought to you by The Bridge. Visit us at thebridgebk.com. Hi, I'm Nick Bailey, and this is the From Day One podcast. Our guest today is Joel Hamilton. He's an engineer, producer, and he's the co-owner of Studio G on the border of Greenpoint and Williamsburg. Studio G is a 5,000 square foot multi-room recording facility. It's been considered a creative center for over 20 years. Hamilton runs it along with Tony Mamone and Chris Cabetta. Some of the clients of the space include Aaron Neville, Bonobo, Annie DeFranco, Philippe Quali, Sesame Street, Spotify, and lots more. Hamilton himself is a Grammy and Latin Grammy nominated for his work. His credits include Tom Waits, Highly Suspect, Bombo Estero, Jolie Holland. Also a musician, Hamilton plays with Sasha Dobson, his own band, Book of Knots. He's been a guest speaker and panelist in many places around the world, and he's known for unique insights on a lot of sound-related topics as well. It's an honor, and we're recording this interview here in the studio itself at Studio G. Um, Joel, thanks for having us in. We're glad you're here. So I want to take into a couple things, but you know, we talk here especially about entrepreneurship and businesses in Brooklyn. Um, so let's talk a little bit about how Studio G as a business got started uh, and how you got to be involved with it uh, over the last couple of decades. Mm-hmm. Um, what's, the, what's the origin story for you? The origin story for me is that I was in a bunch of bands and I kind of came up through the punk and hardcore scene and uh, and was always the the guy in the band that had the four track or the guy in the band that had some way to record practice, basically. And um, I kind of came on board. I mean, the quick version is that I, I met Tony in front of an art supply store that sold coffee on Metropolitan Avenue in Brooklyn, in Brooklyn, like back in the day. Yeah. And it was like the only place around that had good coffee. And I, I smoked cigarettes at the time when I was sitting out front smoking a cigarette and Tony and I wound up talking about studio stuff. I think he overheard me talking about studio stuff and this was in the nineties. And, um, he introduced me to a place called Mission Studios, which is which is a little uh, it's a little ways from here. That's a really nice Neve room, and I, he introduced me to Oliver, the owner of that, and I worked there for a while. Kind of partnered up with Oliver for a minute, and then wound up with uh, Tony getting Tony was on tour with Ronnie Size, like the Represent Crew, mm-hmm. the sort of Bristol drum and bass thing back in the day, and um, while he was out. Uh, Old Studio G got broken into because Brooklyn was a different place then. And Old Studio G got broken into and he happened to call me and a bunch of friends. And we went over there and the doors like wide open. And I lived super close to the Old Studio G location. And from there, I brought some gear over to help kind of get Studio G back on its feet, like just for Tony as a pal in the neighborhood. And then ultimately we wound up working together. And now we've been partners for 20 years. I mean, it's crazy. Like it started with a break in while he was on tour. Started with a coffee break and then a break <laughs> in. Coffee break and then a break in. Yeah, exactly. Got it. Now, had you, you're not from New York, right? Had you, had you no, been working on music stuff? No, I grew up on Cape Cod oh, in Massachusetts, weirdly. And were you a musician uh, as a youth? Did you start, start playing? Yeah, how, kind how, of from how, day one. I mean, I started off on, you know, viola. <laughs> that type of thing when I was in, you know, second grade or whatever, and then drums and upright bass in the high school symphony type of thing. Um, but I went to college for marine biology, though. I didn't think I was going to do music, really. And then promptly dropped out of that and got in a smelly van with the punk band and went on tour and kind of stayed on tour for more than a decade. What was it that sort of prompted that decision? Did you, was it, was it a distaste for marine biology or was it a love for punk rock, a little bit of both? Uh, it was probably was a little, head? It, no, it wasn't the distaste for marine biology. It was more the, um, a distaste for 
living a life that I didn't think I actually wanted all of a sudden. I think it was just that I didn't have the belief in myself to actually do music. And so I felt like pursuing something else, I could always pick up a guitar or go play drums in a band. Whereas the inverse was very difficult to sort of like be a part-time marine biologist that actually plays drums in a big rock band was less <laughs> likely of a scenario in my head. Right. Is that, do you think that was a product that's kind of like, you know, the way you're raised, were you, were you surrounded by uh, musicians and artistic and creative people or, yeah, or, or professional people? Or, you know, yeah, but I saw how, you know, they were such fuck ups that I wasn't sure that they could actually, that I, that I wanted to follow that path. I mean, I grew up with a writer dad who played drums in a band, you know, with my uncle. So I had all of the equipment in the basement. It was like there was a drum set up because my dad was the drummer. So having like the basement meant he didn't have to drive his gear around, but the guitarist and the bassist did. Being a drummer is a, is a dual gig with real estate as well, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You either have the, the wagon, the van or the real estate, you know, and, um, but so anyway, that band being down there and then it, our house became kind of the place when I was really young where people like wavy gravy would be coming through, like these sort of famously creative, wacky people. And, you know, probably on acid when I look back on it, like doing puppet shows for me and my little sister when I was <laughs> six at six in the morning, I'm like, wow, they get up early too, not realizing that they'd been up all night. <laughs> and, um, and it was kind of like, you know, I really just kind of saw that generation's version of super creative lifestyle. And I wasn't sure that that's where I was going with life. Was your dad like a, like a product of like the 60s, like a hippie thing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, but more kind of a rabble rouser. It ultimately was kind of a a really, a, a journalist that, that specialized in libel law and things like this. So it was like, he was really kind of like a cynical contrarian that that wrote for a bunch of different newspapers and worked all over the place and became like the managing editor at the newspaper where in the towns where we grew uh where we were living mm -hmm. um and uh and so we wound up with a a love of language you know there's a there was a lot of flowery conversation at the dinner table it wasn't just like what'd you do today you know it was kind of always good anecdotal or weirdly phrased concepts over dinner, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so it's just kind of a general way of thinking. And that I, I started to feel the dissonance when I was in a very structured environment like school to be a marine biologist, that way of thinking didn't plug in very well to that framework. Do you remember the first time you ever decided to record some of your music to actually to, to take it down and, and how you did it sure i mean i i recorded my little sister i there was these records called the fire sign theater do you remember these things i don't like 70s early 70s um late 60s maybe but it was like a radio play an absurdist radio mm. play it kind of what it sounded like were the the those skits on like a, a frank zappa record but where it was all those skits like these just sort of absurd weird spoken word things and sound effects and stuff and my dad had a couple of those things and i thought they were hilarious when i was seven or eight years old and my mom got me this little two track this little reel to reel um at a at a yard sale you know this little tube thing that i wish i still had you know and it was five bucks or whatever and and i realized all of a sudden through my dad and grandfather being gearheads um that they showed me that it actually physically lived on the piece of tape like that the recorded word physically lived on a chunk of tape 
And, and so I would use before those kitchen magnet things that had like the poetry words mm. on each little magnet, I would kind of catalog a bunch of words that I made my sister say, and then like re-splice them together crappily and create these things where like, I would have her say, her name's Libby. I would have her say, I'm Libby and I don't like it when I smell unicorn farts, you know, or whatever. And then it would obviously turn into I'm Libby and I like unicorn farts. <laughs> and that was like the best possible joke in the world when I was nine. And, and I, there I was learning a skill that I ultimately wound up so using you're a tape professionally. Cutter. You're a tape cutter before you even knew what it was. Completely. I had no Sergeant idea Pepper the word splice. Right. Like absolutely had no idea. And, um, and so I, I mean that, that inspired me to then make these sort of mega mix tapes where I would take, you know, the downbeat of the last note of a police song and it would go into the first note of a Van Halen song or whatever I recorded from my records mm -hmm. onto that same reel to reel. Again, the, the notion that I was putting physicality, like the, the, the tape being a physical thing that I could play like an instrument. Um, changed the way I thought about recording in general, like the in almost in a dubby way, you know mm -hmm. that it was it was a way tape was a way to manipulate a sound that you had recorded rather than just as a capture format. Right, I know a lot of a lot, a lot of people who end up in the studio sort of business um, that come out of the you know some people I think come out of like the AV crowd. There are people who like machines, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of times there's musicians who start to realize that there's this like elephant in the room that there's like a guitar and a drums or or whatever, and then there's these other instruments in the room that are almost just as important or maybe more important to the ultimate sound of the recorded music me. as the one that they're actually playing in their hands. Yep. And they decide they got, they got to master that too. Was that, was that, that was absolutely me. I mean, as far as, again, seeing that control room as an instrument, um, kind of the ultimate expression of something like a combination of modular synth, piano, and other manipulation tool for music was, was important to me. And, and my grandfather, my dad's father, I mean, he was, he worked at Lincoln Labs after being a professor at MIT for mm. years. He was on the team that developed the Klystron tube, which is the tube that facilitated TV broadcast. I mean, my my great-grandmother on my dad's side had the first syndicated radio show in the world here oh, wow. in New York. And I mean, there's a lot of kind of broadcasty things happening. So there was gear. Like nobody was afraid of gear, you know, with with sciencey people and creative people around me a lot when I was a kid. It's like the engineering was really the fusion of those two worlds, if those worlds are exclusive at all, you know, as far as technology and creativity. Right. Do you remember the first time that you were paid to, to record someone's music or something that, or, 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 or to actually sort of yeah, do that? Yeah, there a was job? a hardcore band called Third Age <laughs> that was from Rhode Island that um, I can't believe I'm even referencing that band. Um, that I think I recorded their demo like on my eight track, like on a little reel-to-reel -reel eight track in a basement. I brought it to their rehearsal space type of thing. It was on tape for sure. I mean, this was pre-Pro Tools or laptopy days. And uh, and I think I got like maybe $50, definitely pizza, you know? Um, but that would have been 92 or three, something around there. What was the draw, you know, at that point, somewhere between that and, and, and your, your coffee shop story, you know, you ended up drawn to New York. Mm -hmm. Do you remember how that happened? Yeah. Um, it was a combination of things. Like if I found that everywhere I wound up working, I was fortunate to wind up in the right company. Meaning like if I was, if I was doing something with the band of in, whether it was Bogota, Kansas City, London, or whatever, I wound up with like kind of the cool kids and I felt good about the splash I was making in whatever scene that I wound up in. And I realized that if I could actually do that here, that it would be noteworthy. 
rather than the big fish, small pond syndrome forever, you know? You're aiming for the largest pond. Yeah, you felt like I you mean, were a big fish by demeanor. Um, maybe. I wouldn't have put it in those terms. It wouldn't have been that <laughs> cocky, but it, but definitely sure. like in the sense that uh, that things seem, we seem to max out what the scene had available to us as a studio when I had one out in Kansas City for a little while when I was playing in bands there. I'd moved out to the Midwest for a minute based on friendships. Mm-hmm. And it was like we we just the resources simply weren't there. It was like okay, we did everything now, and that's three years later. And now, what do I do? Did you start to get a sense of the business of studio work though? Like in that period of time, definitely. Like a, the the how business do, do of owning money? a studio. Yeah, how do you make your money? I mean, are you able to, are you able to get away with doing only punk bands, or are you making you know, radio commercials and you know, at for that time? And like, how, how does it? Yeah, how does it work like, on a day to day basis? I mean. If we're talking about at that time versus now, at that time it was taking whoever would record at the studio for sure, and I was the house engineer by default. Mm-hmm. Um, but because when you're in a band, it's usually your friends' bands are the bands that are coming in to record with you. So that's a double-edged sword. You have access to more people who need recordings and less people who are actually going to pay you. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um, and so, I don't know, you just keep the overhead low. And, and subsequently, if... I mean... For me, the game has always been if you have $500 available to make a record, make it sound like 1000 If you have 1000 make it sound like 5000 you know, and so on. And and that has been applied even now. If you're doing a record with a $100,000 budget, you have to make it sound like it had a million-dollar budget, mm-hmm. you know. What were, what, were, what were the economics, though, of, like, the studio business, like, in the 90s? Like, how, how did it work? Who, who, were, who were the clients, like, you know, were, like, what, was, like what was it like, you know, to, to be a business owner and trying to sort of at least survive or, or maybe even thrive in that, in that business? You know, what kind of things were you looking at? It's, it's strange to me that the, the studio business as a whole seems to have as many personalized trajectories as the music business at large. It's asking somebody, how did you start out with like a guitar in your lap when you're 10 and wind up being Jimi Hendrix or whatever? <laughs> I mean, it's such, a, it's such a specific trajectory that would not work for you or I if we then could start with a guitar, a Strat in our hands strung upside down. It doesn't guarantee even getting halfway to where a Jimi Hendrix got mm-hmm. for an obvious reference. And, and so again, the, the studio, to, for me to comment on the studio business is for me to comment on a very personalized trajectory Mm -hmm. that operated within a very sort of DIY scene and then expanded when the DIY scene ultimately bubbles up from the underground and becomes cool. You know, so if you're recording bands that sound like Bad Brains in 1992 and then there's sort of, quote, grunge bands blow up and they're on the radio, but you're still friends with Tad, it's like you wind up being cooler by default because Nirvana got sold. Mm-hmm. to a label you know what i mean it's like so all of a sudden this this whole aesthetic gets elevated in the marketplace and it becomes something that's in demand i mean ultimately what we're all dealing with here is an incredibly volatile commodity like something might hit it might not but we're investing time and resources in it and so when you look at that kind of arc for each band i mean it's it's it couldn't be more random as far as kind of who makes it and who doesn't. And so on the studio end, though, where we're actually making something for that band, if you're just making demos, you're, you're sort of capped. Your income is capped forever. If you're making the the records for the bands that 
already had a demo, then got signed to a first time signing on an indie deal, you're capped at what, five, maybe 10 grand per record. And hopefully you can do six of those a year and keep your overhead inside of that. You know, and and weirdly, all of the gear, <clears throat> I'm gesturing at the mics we're talking into, all of the gear that I wound up with sort of became almost like a diploma where I would graduate from having a janky <clears throat> tape machine that maybe didn't punch in on track 15 and you had to like swap cards around and just make it work. You had, I went from that, I graduated to having an MCI and then graduated to having a Studer. Those are two different level of tape machine and one's more expensive than the other. And it's like the, the infrastructure in the studio ultimately wound up being almost a direct one-to-one reflection of the community that I was serving. Hmm. So it was like I had really broken stuff and I was serving a community that could only afford the kind of broken stuff. And therefore they were more patient with me having to kind of make it work. And then we moved to the next level because that process and those bands' patience got me to the next level where sort of a younger, grungy band wanted to sound a bit like Bad Brains. So I wound up working on their record, but they were a little less patient with my broken shit. (laughs) (laughs) And so then I wound up, but they had a little more money to spend. And so I would take a percentage of that budget and put it into the next vocal microphone or mic pre or piece of equipment that sort of pushed me to the next level on the infrastructure side. And in that sense, we're bootstrapping. I would say that every single studio owner, unless they have a massive startup loan or they're independently wealthy, they understand bootstrapping like almost nobody else would understand bootstrapping on a fundamental level of kind of getting a grip two inches from where you are at any given moment financially and clawing your way up till you can see that next level. And then you see what it requires and it requires more money and it requires more time and more people helping you. It's sort of a, there's sort of a limitless, uh, sort of sky's the limit approach. Like you can, you can always have a bigger studio. You can always have more expensive. There's always, there's always some, there's always something that you don't have. Right. But until you get overextended, I mean, this, these are like sort of things that I've gone back and gone, wow, business people actually know about this. (laughs) (laughs) There's people who know about business, you know, and I don't, I sort of sprint in the dark until my face hits something. I fall down and then I stand up and go, hey guys, there's a wall there. And and from that now informed position that there's a wall, we figure out how to get over it. You're sort of talking about like having an intuitive connection to like balance sheet stuff, right? Like to, to your capital, so like the way, the way a factory owner or like, you know, like a, like a multinational might plan for revenues and expenses. Um, you're talking about just trying to have to do that, but with also... You also have to have an intuition for which of your projects are going to succeed, which of your things are going to be in and out of favor and style. There's like sort of Absolutely. a fashion element to it mm-hmm. and then also a business element, right? Mm-hmm. But but that I think that if we look at it as it, it the, the older I get, the more it looks like market conditions informing somebody who's an investor. You know what I mean? So it's like if you know that uh, some hard good like steel, you know, some generic uh, uh easy one like that. If steel is going up or down because you're aware of market conditions in a country that's buying it all up in quotes or whatever, you would then kind of have a sense, some sort of sense that the price is going to go up or down. For me, it's the same thing. If I'm only working on rock records that sound like something cool from 1996, I may not be able to invest a lot in that particular aesthetic 
you know, time resources wise. So you, again, we wind up with gear that reflects the community that's coming through the doors. If everybody wants to make beats, you're going to see more electronic, like synthy type of things. We're going to invest more in that aspect of owning a studio, not just the room, mm -hmm. the rent and the, you know, the, the room almost doesn't matter for something that's all electronic based because you're not tracking live instruments. Mm -hmm. As the, as the business started to sort of grow and you started to face these kind of questions, like you started to, to sort of think long-term and you're like, hey, this is going to work, at least for the most part. Um, did you start to sort of formulate like a sense of values or business values? Like how, how did you, how do you make decisions based on your values and ethics? Like as you grow a business like that? Oh, it's interesting. We did. And it was very much what, what we, what we used as a barometer or some sort of moral compass in the beginning was unfortunately is the word that came to mind. I'm not sure it's completely applicable, but unfortunately we had a lot of negative examples where we were not going to be the classic sort of frat boy hierarchical, like the, the interns get crapped on and where the sort of masters of the control room, we yell at people and throw them out if they like talked or whatever. We, we had examples of that from working in other more traditional studios, larger facilities all around the world where that hierarchical totem pole system was kind of gross. Like to a me. Hollywood vibe. You're talking about kind of assistance and like people don't sure. matter. Yeah. Know. Yeah, exactly. Like, well, even the concept that somebody would matter more or less in the room was something that I was always opposed to. And again, it came from this sort of punk aesthetic of like that everybody in the room has a role or why did you even let them in there? I mean, it's it was weird to me that you, it's kind of like if there's a president that hires terrible people and then talks about how terrible they were when he fires them. Hypothetically speaking. Hypothetically speaking. <laughs> it's that type of thing. Like it reflects on me, in my opinion, if I have crummy interns or crummy assistants or crummy this, that ultimately was a part of the aesthetic that, that we're then putting out into the world. So just yelling at them, like allowing them to be in there and be horrible and then kicking them out in some sort of power play move in front of everybody was just going to be something we were not going to do. And we were going to make sure that anybody who we did sort of invite into the family uh, of Studio G was, was, was able to represent Studio G on their own. Like they're all really a piece of the whole story. What about the, uh, you know, what about the leadership? Like you guys, you guys were, you're not a solo founder, you have partners and, and people that came in at different periods of time. How did you guys manage that? you know, interpersonal dynamic and, and, and how, how did you make decisions like as a group? Being, I mean, this gets fairly, uh, you know, this is, this is like, we needed to be emotionally aware and emotionally grown up enough to bring our assets and liabilities to the table and lay them all out. Um, because a partnership doesn't work if everybody basically, let me put it By this assets way. Assets and liabilities. You mean like interpersonal, not, oh, not yeah. financial? Uh, Yes, both, guess, in a, in a, in both, but yeah, like what you bring to the table gear wise and what <laughs> sure. you bring to the table emotional baggage wise, right. there it's both, there are assets and liabilities in both categories for sure. But, but let me put it this way. We knew, or I knew intuitively from working as a tour manager and looking at the way bands operated drunk, sober at the airport in a van that's about to run out of gas, like stressful situations, comfortable situations that the last thing I needed on my team I didn't need an X-Men where all 12 people shot lasers out of their eyes. I needed the diversity within the team so that there was a day where somebody needed to break down the door. 
it wasn't going to be laser eye guy. It was going to be like big stone giant guy that can punch a hole in the door. It's like we needed to have our superhero strengths that that were complementary and maybe completely different. Laser eye guy is completely different than big stone dummy guy, and they both bring something to the table. And so it's like so you're basically like a band of a band of superheroes, you know, basically to, yeah. to make music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Nothing grandiose at all there. <laughs> no, but but the the idea that there was a particular strength that each person brought to the table that was important to the success of the company is definitely something we had an eye on. We wouldn't have partnered up. Tony and I wouldn't have partnered up with somebody that was exactly another Joel or exactly another Tony. And when we found Chris, he was like the perfect fit between the two of us, the way we both operate. And Chris has a more sort of practical side where I'm just like willing to stay artsy about the books. And he actually will show a projection for 2019. Mm-hmm. And and I'm so thankful for that because it's not that I don't understand it. It's just that I, I have other strengths. So as the business kind of came together and it's closer to current form, like late 90s, early 2000s, um, you guys were at the intersection of a couple different trends, but there's there's two that like seem to be like giant global trends that were happening at the same time. One, of course, that the music business, or specifically the recorded music business, which is an important you know sort of distinction for you guys, um, essentially collapsed. I mean, the, the number one selling albums uh, of like 1999, 2000 uh, for the year were like 10, 15 million. You know, five six years later, like a million records was was an achievement. I think I think Beyonce recently just barely even made it to, to platinum and that's the most popular thing in the world. Yeah. So that's like a 10 year span, 10 or 15 year span. Um, at the same time that this is all happening, the place that you're centered, like the sort of cultural center of your business, Brooklyn, mm-hmm. went from you know a backwater in a lot of people's eyes to like this globally iconic, you know, musical, artistic and cultural place. You know, that must've been just, you know, neck breaking change on, on two counts. Like. How did you guys kind of stay afloat during that? Like, what was that like? I mean, backwater, I think, is diplomatic. It went from the scary place you had to argue with the taxi driver to go over the Williamsburg Bridge to, like, where everyone wanted to be. And and ultimately, not that that's the point, <laughs> but but definitely, like, it. it's not that it was, like, uh, this bucolic kind of meadow that then turned into it. So it was actually, it was like a dare to even be here. Mm -hmm. And that's a part of the story, convincing people to come to Brooklyn. It wasn't that it was the middle of nowhere. It was like actually scary to some people to think about. Yeah, Yeah. it was worse than nowhere. That's going to be our new, uh, our new thing here above the door. City of Brooklyn, it's worse than nowhere. (laughs) It does sound like a Fugazi song at least. But so, I mean, weirdly, I, my my first instinct was to say to you, we sort of dipped underground. Right in the middle of that transition, I was recording a record. This is 2000. I was recording a record for a band called Sparkle Horse. Like I did this record called It's a Wonderful Life for Those Guys. And they were on Capitol. I mean, it's a, quote, major label record. But yet it was kind of underground and artsy. And we didn't care so much about, like, is this going to go platinum type of thing? So the traditional metrics used to gauge success used to measure success in the uh in the music business it was like at that type of with that type of band you wound up just kind of not thinking in those terms it wasn't going to be a grammy winning record it wasn't going to be like a platinum record it was going to be a piece of art you know i mean ultimately it has to function within the infrastructure uh of the music business but we it we just weren't thinking that way which is a huge semantic flip the pressure the pressure was lower you're saying financially for for records you know when the music business had more like 
stray money sloshing around. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah, but in the sense that the goal was not to then overcome the deficiencies that we were starting to see in the record business. So we weren't like, wow, against all odds, we still need this to sell 6 million copies for this to go right side up on the level of investment that we're getting into here. It was more like, let's keep the production costs lower and do something really interesting with Mm -hmm. that time instead of, you know, creating a, a bloated $5 million record you know, something that costs $5 million to make has to sell a lot of records to get right side up. But right at that same time, though, you would go to the cafe and Kip from TV on the radio would be there. Or then I would go over and like have a beer with Nick Zinner from Yeah, Yeah, Yeah's that was a young band. And he's still DJing at a place called The Red and the Black. And we're like adjusting the compressor for him, you know, so that the turntables aren't feeding back. And there was this like groundswell of relevant artists that we're living in the cheaper neighborhood out here because the East Village got expensive. I mean, it's really kind of that simple. And and so our business model morphed to accommodate the community that we were, I mean, I've said it three times now, but the, we, it, it sort of kept evolving to support that new breed of kid that was starting bands in Williamsburg. And, and we just happened to speak the same language. We came from the same set of influences and had enough gear that we could get the job done for them. There was a few studios out here that, that are still going um, that wound up really kind of capitalizing on that. And then there was a second wave, guys that were my assistants that opened studios like The Bunker. John Davis opened The Bunker. Uh, Mark Goodman was my assistant for five years after John. He opened a place called Strange Weather. And they're now doing records for people that are like dirty projectors and beyond, like the sort of next wave of kind of Bushwicky kids instead of Williamsburgy kids. Um, I think overall, again, in general, our our conditions in the 90s, it was kind of like asking how does a cactus grow in the desert? We weren't in the rainforest of the 90s when it was raining money on mm. Bruce Springsteen. We were recording things that sounded like quicksand and and didn't have the money. So it was like the conditions were just a lot more slim and yet we thrived in these conditions. We figured out how to make it when the budget was $300 instead of $3 million. And so again, the entire model does scale up when you're maximizing what you're producing for the same amount of money that somebody else is going to take $5 million to make this same quality record. We're doing it for 5,000 in a basement somewhere, you know, in 1998. And that scales up, you know? So I guess you're saying what, you know, you guys stayed lean, right? You were, you never stay lean. You started lean and, and, by virtue of your artistic lean choices, life. it was just the way it was. Yeah. And then when everybody had to get lean, there you were with, with, with some experience under your belt. Absolutely. Whereas things that required five meals a day, when they were getting one, they started to get really skinny. They started <laughs> to complain a lot and then they died. Mm-hmm. You know, so like the worst years at the AES, uh, which is the big gear show that happens every three years in New York, it rotates between Europe, San Francisco, and here. Um, Every time it's in New York, it was a great gauge of where we were at because there would be some like, you know, 62 year old grizzled, jaded engineer that worked as the house engineer at Avatar or some other multi-room facility in Manhattan for 30 years of his life now complaining that everything's crap. And nobody has any money and all of this. And we're like, we just added a B room, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, like I have no idea what you're talking about. And then everybody that sort of, you know, you, you looked around after there was like this 
as you said, you know, it was like everything kind of tanked. It all but kind of went into the holes, you know, at, at 2002-ish, you know. Everything got really dark. And then after that, you looked around, everybody's heads poked up from the rubble. And everybody that was still around was like, hey, we understand how to operate in this landscape. That's true. Now, you're, you're, in some ways, you're underestimating like the real carnage, though. Like the recording studio business, which was really a, like a mainstay of New York City, mm-hmm. and it's an iconic part of New York City's identity. Um, Tin Pen Alley, arguably, is sort of like a recording sure. studio building. Sure. Um, you know, the real building. And of course, you've got what in the West 40s and 50s. Yeah, the record plant, and I'm trying to remember the, Hit power, factory. the power station here in LA. Like these, 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 these giant iconic studios um, where like Thriller gets made, or you know, uh, like a virgin born in the USA. The USA you know, like all of this. You know, all, all the sort of like rock and roll mythology um, and pop music, you know, as well. Um, these were these, you know, these these incredible places, like these these artistic places. They're like all gone, right? Mm-hmm. Like Except for, much. well, besides that Berkeley and $6 million of taxpayer money kept Avatar open now as power station by Berkeley. Mm-hmm. The Wall Street Journal actually interviewed me about how I felt about $6 million of taxpayer money going to, to quote, compete with you. save, yeah, to compete with me, yeah. which is money that we paid into the pot now going to our competitors. Um, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that I'm being understated with that carnage that happened. I'm saying that what what does that mythology guarantee for the future? I mean, people thought chess records would go forever when they had like, let's do the twist. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? That was on top of the world. It doesn't guarantee a future. Right. You Every know, generation or, throws their own heroes. Yeah. The or like, I mean, like say. who, who, you know, was this newfangled electricity something that shouldn't have happened because it destroyed the, the whale oil trade? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's sort of like, it doesn't guarantee longevity because it seems steadfast in 1992, in my opinion. And the model just simply doesn't plug into 2018 and work. Right. But, you know, I think underpinning that carnage is, A, the collapse in record sales, no question, the collapse of major label budgets and stuff. But, you know, there's a there's a twin force there that you definitely weren't immune to, which is, which is real estate and New York real estate becoming impossible. Um, in this networked world where you can transfer gigabytes of data and like all this, you don't need magnetic tapes and, and a station wagon anymore. Um, you know, clearly you found the ability to thrive here um, in a place when, you know, it would be pretty easy for recording studios to be anywhere, even more so. True. So obviously there's something going on um, with location uh, that is a counter to like the oppressive real estate conditions that businesses face, you know, here in Brooklyn, especially. Um, Why do you think that is? Uh, I mean, I think it comes down to being more in demand than the other guy. I mean, if we made something to compete with Coca-Cola and we put a can on the shelf, it would occupy the same exact amount of space as a Coca-Cola can. And how many? One in 100 would choose our startup cola versus choosing a Coca-Cola each day. And so you wind up with a little chunk of market share there. And maybe it doesn't justify that shelf space and the deli guy stops carrying it. It's because you weren't in demand. If you're out selling Coca-Cola, I guarantee you Coca-Cola's shelf space will get smaller and whatever new cola brand is starts to occupy more space there. I mean, it's to me, it's why we're expanding and there's other things that have to give up their lease or, you know what I mean? Like have to leave their building or sell it. I mean, 
it's not just the walls that are before you could build a studio and people would come and work in your studio. Now our whole model was always much more like a wood shop where there's 10 different carpenters and there might be one guy who makes bookshelves that everybody wants and then design within reach licenses that from the guy he's super in demand because of his designs, not because of the same chop saw that the six guys used in the wood shop. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So if I make birdhouses that everybody loves with the same exact circular saw that you're making birdhouses, everybody hates, like same saw, same infrastructure, same rent that we're sharing, but my thing, my birdhouses are now taking care of the entire space Mm -hmm. that we work in. So this is more like a shop where what's valuable is what's created inside the walls. And back in the day, it was more about the walls being valuable in and of themselves. Right, because people couldn't do it at home. Now now there's a lot more choices. And now you really have to bring something special. Right, and weirdly that democratization or maybe socialization of the recording process, meaning everybody with a laptop can make a record now. Basically everybody with a phone can make a record now. That, and that, do. <laughs> and yeah, but that weirdly put the the uh, importance back on the people. So mm-hmm. we've felt it actually as a as an asset rather than a liability. Because the when rubber tracks, which I'm gonna just name names, I don't care. Rubber tracks, when they <laughs> opened up around the corner, which was the Converse studio, Converse sponsored a studio right around the corner from us on North 12th Street, and it was free. To musicians, it was absolutely free to record there, and basically, my one of my partners said, "Oh man, blah 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 about this place opening up that's free. What's going to happen? What's that going to do to us?" And I was like, "How do you think Tuscany felt when Olive Garden opened up? <laughs> like they felt nothing. The brand is diminished by zero when mm-hmm. Olive Garden says we are Italiano now, and Tuscany goes, yeah, <laughs> you know, like how do you think that Ferrari felt when?" Kia started selling a sedan. Zero, again. Like the brand is, it's just intact throughout all of this. The 99 cent store never affects the ability for Tiffany to sell engagement rings. Well, you could, I mean, you could actually make, you know, there's there's an interesting sort of economics discussion that goes around clustering. Um, you know, there's like the flower district in Manhattan sure, or sure. the old Radio Row. Or yeah. The, the, Williamsburg the, um, is the recording district. You, you know, in some, way, in some ways it's a sign that you've succeeded and, um, you know, one of the reasons that real estate has gotten so expensive in places like Brooklyn or San Francisco is because despite all of our interconnected world, people still feel the need to kind of like all be jammed together in one place, especially in the communities of creativity, our, you know, the arts communities and, and technology of which you guys are kind of combining all elements of. Um, so in some ways, you know, you're you're both affected by, but you're also kind of the reason why the real estate is getting expensive. Sure, right? I mean these people oh, buying condos down the street want to be near you. Oh, believe to some me. Extent. The, I mean the freaks with the tattoos that were out here first, and like dealing with almost getting stabbed on your way to the train when I would go to work at Avatar, like having to get up and then go and like commute into Manhattan from living out here. It's like definitely without a doubt. I mean, Tony moving out here and being in They Might Be Giants in like 1985 through 92 or whatever. It's like, I mean, it was a scarier place to live at that point. You know, much more dangerous place to live. And that, you know, that cafe that I'm talking about that was an art supply store with a bunch of like really grizzled dudes that opened it up. I mean, that was the first thing on Metropolitan that was, quote, artsy. And now it's like you can't find anything but artsy little shops up and down that part of Metropolitan. It's like, for sure, we understand our role in the gentrification process out here. And we moved from a smaller space to a larger space. That was expansion number one. And now we're about to double in size. Um, 
I mean, I think what's really important about the kind of the the clustering concept is that absolutely we felt proud of what we had done by kind of like setting setting anchor here building this space and becoming kind of a hub for a bunch of creative people. And we felt the energy that was focused on us, meaning like sitting in the, in the lounge, you know, we have a common lounge for three recording spaces and there's like a younger punk band, Nora Jones and like some dude who's rapping in the other room coming and all sitting at the table together. It's like, that's when I felt like we had become a hub. It wasn't just about, uh, what was happening in the rooms individually or the value of that. It was the value of creating a community that then expands. I mean, the radius of what it means to be a community around a recording studio is, is something that the brand relies on. Do you know what I mean by that? Like we like studio G as a brand means it's a place where you can kind of do anything. We understand all the styles of music. We're a varied bunch of people in response to the sort of real estate aspect of this, that means that protecting the clubhouse is priority one. There's a lot to be said for how much disbelief played a role in the closing of studios when mm -hmm. they're like, man, the Lower East Side's never going to be expensive, you know, and then gone, Loho is gone, mm -hmm. you know, like eh, that Crosby Street, nobody drives down that, nobody cares about that. Right. There goes Magic Shop, you know yeah. what I mean? Like all of that. But there's, there's that like, you know, who's going to pay a billion dollars for that condo up the street that they're building, those stupid things, meanwhile, full in like a week. Like, so this disbelief, I think we've now overcome that. There was this massive amount of disbelief in 2002 that the rent was ever going to be expensive on like West 12th. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, I talked with um, Peter Shapiro, who, um, you know, owns your, your neighbors yeah, in Brooklyn Bowl. Sure, sure. An old friend of mine. And he, um, you know, he was running the wetlands. And he said yep. that they chose the wetlands. Um, his predecessor chose the wetlands because it was across the street from the Holland Tunnel. And yeah. no one's ever going to want to live no. here. I'm safe. Of course. Boom, it's Tribeca. Of course. You know? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, that's a New York story, right? Exactly. But I think it's the New York story times every neighborhood mm -hmm. in New York. Absolutely. Do you, do you worry about that, though? I mean, do you worry that, I mean, historically speaking, at least, you know, it seems like uh, creativity and, and the arts thrive. And, you know, among people who don't have a lot of other resources and yeah. the ability to focus on stuff, it's becoming really challenging to live anywhere near New York right now without right. some kind of, you know, help from your family or some kind of sure. background. Some worry that like the city is becoming exclusively populated by people who have access to you know, that sort of that, that they're, they're attached to the spigot of the 1% somehow. Um, do you see, do you worry about that? Uh, the thing that I worry about is that Every time I worry about that, because yes is the answer, I worry about it. What happens is I find some really awesome band that lives together on the third floor of a three-story building that was rented out in East New York with like another band renting out the second story. And there's like 16 kids paying the rent on a building out there. And they're making it happen the same exact way that when everybody was like, nobody would ever live over the bridge. You know what I mean? We're staying in the East Village because we're punk rock over here and we wear leather pants and we're now moms and dads and we have tattoos, you know, like we're, we're, rock like cbgb's is rock cbgb's closes williamsburg opens there's places like lux that became trash bar or whatever you know stuff like this opens up where there was no availability there was no real estate for us to have the punk club and all of a sudden williamsburg happens there's no real estate left in williamsburg to do that it goes to bushwick you know like there's no blah 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 blah, blah. keep going the radius again the radius just kind of gets wider the thing that i would worry about is if i ever lost sight of creating 
having a space where those people are welcome. Like where the creative people that don't have a billion dollars, I need my business model to be able to record anything from Kings of Leon down to whatever band you don't know the name of in East New York right now, or like electronic project. That's one kid who like dresses in drag and like jumps up and down and lights himself on fire. I want this to be a place where that can happen um, along with whatever else, you know, like, and, and we've been able to scale our approach to each project financially so that it works and never treat anybody differently based on the rate they're paying to come through the door. And that's a big part. Again, ethically, that's a big part of how we operate. You don't get bumped if you're the like cross-dressing kid that jumps up and down and lights themselves on fire because Kings of Leon wants to do an overdub. You know what I mean? Like Sesame Street already booked it. You can't book it. But if you book the day after Sesame Street, you're as important as Sesame Street to us, you know? And I think keeping an eye on that has made makes the anxiety about the changing community go away when I go to sleep at night, knowing that I know exactly who our clientele is and it's from the bottom to the top, you know? Joel, thanks so much for, uh, for talking with us today. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. I appreciate you coming out to talk. You've been listening to From Day One, how Brooklyn entrepreneurs got their start. This series is made possible by The Bridge, a news site dedicated to reporting on business in Brooklyn. With help from Complex Ventures, a Brooklyn-based digital agency working with more than profit companies and organizations. For more from The Bridge, to learn more about today's guest, or to listen to more episodes of From Day One, visit us at thebridgebk.com. That's T-H-E-B-R-I-D-G-E-B-K.com. From Day One is produced by Cora Feeder, Steve Kep, and myself, Nick Bailey. Audio editing and post-production by Steph Derwin. Our theme music was performed by Jody Rockwell and the Ambulamps. And our founding sponsor was the Made in New York Media Center. Thanks for listening.